Hello, and welcome to Psyche and Spirit with Rilendra. I'm Rilendra, and this is episode one of Psyche and Spirit. So glad that you could listen in as I launch this podcast, webcast, videocast, whatever this kind of cast is. And as the name signifies, uh, I'll be talking a lot about psyche and spirit, which is to say psychological questions and spiritual questions. Really, it's the questions of humanity themselves, and those will involve societal questions as well. I will also be reading some of my articles from my online journal, Open Heart, Open Mind. And yeah, I'm going to take this thing and see what it becomes. Let it, let it <clears throat> help me discover. Let it teach me what it is. Uh, potentially there will be opportunities to receive information from listeners about topics you'd like me to cover. But to start with, since this is episode one and there are no listeners yet, um, I'll be covering some topics that I want to talk about. And I thought the best place to start would be talking about attachment trauma and God. Really bringing in the whole psyche and spirit theme here. And I don't have anything prepared. I'm just really going to be speaking in terms of what comes up for me on these on these issues and what they mean to us as human beings. So let's start by just diving right in to attachment trauma. Well, first of all, what is attachment trauma? Uh, when I say attachment trauma, what I'm talking about here is the kind of trauma that, especially as a child and as an infant, arises as we are attempting to make sense of this question of like, who am I? Um, who am I and who are others? Am I safe? Right? Am I safe? We come into this world uh, and none of us can remember, as far as I know, um, what we were experiencing when we first came into this world birth. But I think we can imagine that you're coming into a reality in which you have no context. There's not going to be a sense of I. There's not going to be a sense of this is who I am. Because you've never had an experience of self and other. That's something to be figured out. That's something to eventually be understood that I am one thing and that which is outside me is another thing. And then there's this question of safety. Are we going to be okay? Because we're going to be coming in with all kinds of wild sensations, all kind of wild sensations of alarm related to like here I am, incarnated in this physical form, in this body that has these needs to eat, to breathe, to be touched, um, emotional needs, all kinds of needs that are there to be discovered. 
And we come in as infants without knowledge, without language, without um, development of the psyche and of the mind, without development of the body to, to really have hardly any control over it at all, a very small body. And we're very completely dependent on our parents or whoever our caregivers are, if it's not our parents, to keep us alive, to attend to our needs. And so attachment comes down to this question of trust. It comes down to the question of trust. And attachment trauma happens when trust is broken, when trust is ruptured. And it happens when, when there's abuse, when someone is treated as an object instead of as a sovereign human being, then this is abuse. And it happens when there's neglect, when the child is treated as though their needs didn't matter, as if they didn't matter when the child is treated as if they're doing fine when they're not doing fine. There's so many different ways that these patterns of abuse and neglect can arise. And all of them are going to amount to attachment trauma. Now there's a certain like sort of inherent level of attachment trauma that's gonna be there as an infant, you know, supposing you're hungry, you don't even know what hunger is. You just know you have a bad feeling, right? And then there's screaming. You scream, you cry. And maybe mom comes and nurses you. And then you, you get your hunger satisfied. And you're like, oh, okay, I'm all right. The pain's going away. But maybe she doesn't come. Right? Maybe she can't come right away. She can't be there right away every single time. Well, that could be a form of attachment trauma. But that's not really, and we all have that. We all have trauma. But I'm going to be focusing more in on, on those deeper traumas today. And talking about how that relates to our relationship with God. And with spirit, with the be-all, end-all of being. So I want to break down attachment trauma here um, and talk about some of the ways that it fractures the psyche, fractures the sense of self. We'll be having a developing, growing sense of self. Um, and there's these developmental goals to be reached there. So to start with, one of the goals is, is to develop that sense of like, this is who I am. And then this is who other people are. And then to be able to differentiate how other people are different from each other. 
and how oneself is different from the others. And this is something that's going to be occurring, you know, like pretty early on, but it it goes through a series of developmental stages through two, three, four, like those those periods of time. We can have a time of egocentrism. The best example I like to use of this is like the child who, um, let's say, loves his mother and, and he loves uh, toy cars. It's his favorite toy. So here's, oh, it's, it's mom's birthday. She needs a birthday present. I'm going to get her the best birthday present anybody could ever have. What's, what's he going to get her? He's going to get her a toy car. He's going to pick out a toy car to be her birthday present. Because the egocentrism hasn't differentiated yet. He understands that mom's a different person, but he doesn't understand that mom has different likes and dislikes as he does. He just hasn't incorporated that into his, into his picture of, of what other people are yet. And so this is the state of a certain kind of narcissism that's completely appropriate and natural to a child who's developing at that time. Whereas other people are kind of like imaginary constructions in one's own mind. And trying to figure out like, okay, who are these other people? How do I relate to them? And then you just kind of create something in your mind and then project it onto the other person. And this is the basic state of being in a narcissistic process. And the next part of that state is really that like these other people, you know, insofar as you create them in your mind, you create them to be useful to you. Because when somebody is in a narcissistic process, they have not developed the sense of themselves. Through attachment, wounding, abuse, neglect, and fracturing, the sense of the self was never able to fully come together. Um, somewhere around the age of three, four, somewhere in there. And so that's what we find happening. This is one of the results of attachment trauma. Is somebody can find themselves arrested in a state of arrested development in that narcissistic space. Another possibility is that a person could find themselves developing in a more codependent direction. We use the word codependent here to describe somebody who still has this frustrated personality development, this frustrated ego development has occurred. But it has occurred with the sense of the other. The sense of the other has come in, right? 
and the sense of the other as potentially like not created by the self has come in. And that part of the developmental process is, is there. But the sense of the self is still fragmented and, and unstable. And typically there's going to be like a sense of shame around the self as with the narcissist, right? All of these attachment woundings and attachment traumas, they're creating this core sense of shame around the sense of self, right? And that's what, what causes them to be so distressing and, and uh, resulting in these impacts throughout the lifespan. So we have the codependent sense of self in a place of, I'm not good enough. I don't have worth. My worth is determined insofar as I meet the needs of others. And so that's what I mean by a codependent process. You're going to have somebody who's scanning other people, looking for clues to find out what do they want? What do they need? What do they want? What do they need? How do they want me to be? How can I be a way that will meet what they want, what they need? Then I'll be useful to them and they'll keep me around and I'll have connection, I'll have attachment. But if I'm not useful to others, I won't be kept around because I'm fundamentally bad. That's the basic process of codependency, which is implicit, right? We don't tend to think these things consciously with awareness, although we might consciously have thoughts very similar to that. And for, for the narcissist, it's going to be, there's going to, again, sort of be a sense of like, I'm not sure if I'm worth anything, but meanwhile, there's like a sense of like, well, I am worth something, right? I must be, I must be, I just, I've, in fact, I need to be, the biggest and the best in all ways. And um, in order to be worth something, in order to be worth something, I've got to be worth everything. I've got to prove it. And other people need to be in a situation of proving this story about me. Because if it's not true, I'm going to fall apart into just the black void of chaos and just despair and shame and just get sucked into this trauma place. Right? So I think of it sometimes as like the narcissist is like the director of a movie and the codependent is like an actor, right? The narcissist has the vision and says like, here's the picture we're going to make. It's going to be the greatest movie ever directed by me, right? And um, I'll get the glory for that. But you're gonna come in and play the role for me 
I need you to play this role. You're going to be this way. Here's your script. This is how you are. And the codependent says like, yes, yes, please hire me. Hire me in your script. Hire me for your movie. I'm willing. I'll be the clay for you to mold. <laughs> right? And so the codependent and the narcissist come together in this way so many times. And it's also important to recognize that all of us have a narcissistic process within us. All of us have a codependent process within us. And people who are very codependent have a narcissistic process within them. And people who are very narcissistic have a codependent process within them. And these different processes are sort of like activated at different levels, depending on sort of nature of our attachment traumas and how these unfolded. And but to really break down like how these attachment traumas get in there, I think the concept of enmeshment is the most useful one. With enmeshment, let's say the parent, the primary caregiver, is interacting with their child in an enmeshed way. And what this means is that this child is actually put in a place of being responsible for the parent's emotions and for the parent's needs. So the parent will maybe be harsh, emotionally abusive to the child. Oh, if it weren't for you, you know, if, it, if I didn't have to take care of you, then I could have the things that I really need in life. Then I could get my needs met. But you make it so hard. You can't take care of yourself. You know, you're already five years old and you can't cook dinner for yourself. You know, it's a little absurd, but like it can get to that point. Um, and this message can be communicated in a number of subtle ways where the parent is just letting the child know, you're a burden to me. I've sacrificed a lot for you. And like, what have you done for me? What, when have you made it worth my while? Right? So this is an enmeshment. The parent is putting the child in a place of responsibility to make them happy. And that's going to usually create like a, a very strong codependent complex in that child. Um, And, you know, usually like stronger levels of abuse, stronger levels of using the child as an object are going to create more narcissistic um, types of complexes. But all of it's an enmeshment. The child's boundaries are not respected. The parent moves in across the boundaries. They start to merge. Right? They merge with each other. And sometimes I'll describe this in terms of like, there's like an enmeshment, there's like a little enmeshment demon that gets in there as well. Right? Let's say with some form of abuse, maybe it's sexual abuse, right? The parent could come in and, and say like, here's the special way of relating that we have 
and it hurts. It's going to hurt. You're going to think you don't want it, but you really do want it. This is actually love, even though it hurts. So now the child can't tell the difference between pain and love. Can't tell the difference between abuse and love. And then we're bringing in our friend, the enmeshment demon. And I'm going to come in across your boundaries here, and I'm going to bring this enmeshment demon in there. And this little demon lives in me, and it's going to live in you too. And the demon says, shame, shame. You should be ashamed. You should be ashamed of how you are, of what you are. You're not good. When you don't want to have your boundaries violated, that's because you're not good. If you were good, you would want to have your boundaries violated. They're not even being violated. You're supposed to want that. And if you don't want it, you're the problem. You're letting your mom down. You're letting your dad down. You're letting everyone down because you take from them. You being there is a burden on them and that you've got to relieve that burden for them. You've got to accept this abuse. It's not abuse. This isn't abuse. You've got to accept this treatment. You've got to accept this love. You're supposed to love this. Your parents just want to connect with you. These are the types of things that the enmeshment demon is saying. It's encoding this into the psyche of the child. It's this gaslighting wound, right? The child doesn't know, like, if I want something, I don't really want it. And if I don't want something, I really do want it. If I feel like I'm a certain way, I'm not that way. My parent tells me how I am. My parent projects realities onto me to suit their own narcissistic designs. And that's who I am, not who I think I am. Who I think I am is a problem that has to be squashed. In fact, the way I am has to be changed. All of us, I think, you know, really got some level of this in our childhood. I've heard, uh, forgetting his name right now, the author of The Four Agreements, and calls it the, the dream of hell, <laughs> right? In the dream of hell where um, we don't have sovereignty, we don't have agency. We're in these enmeshments. We're just in these enmeshed relationships with others, trying to get some sort of feeling of love through the enmeshment, through mutual codependency, through abuse. And we have just this feeling of feeling bad in ourselves and about ourselves. And it gets, it wears us down. We get trauma blocks, we get freezes and dissociations, compartmentalizations. And we'll go to addictions, drugs, substances, video games, anything compulsive that can do some emotional regulatory work for us. And that's attachment trauma. 
So I wanted to just talk about this, this foundation for attachment trauma in the first episode. Because it's, it's fundamental to navigating this experience of our humanity and our experience of spiritual realities. And that brings in that question of God, right? And so let's get into that. When I use the word God, what I'm really doing here is I'm using this word in its archetypical sense to refer to the all, everything, all together. You know, people will use words like the universe. They Maybe they prefer the more secular explanation of that. Um, I don't so much prefer the word the universe because it has material, materialist connotations, which is to say that there's nothing in the universe except for matter and energy. And what we really want to do is be accounting for consciousness and spiritual realities as part of the all as well. Another way to be getting at this word God is like, okay, there's me, and then there's everything that's not me. And we could call that God. Um, there's like a way of, let's say if you had like a circle, right? Like a ring. Imagine like a line drawn in a circle, but it's like a ring that exists in space. Inside the circle, it's like, I'm going to say, well, that's me. Outside the circle, that's the other. That's not me. That's, that's God. Um, but understanding that this circle is like a ring, right? So you could like bend this ring and there's just the same space of creation is, is the same kind of space. It could be inside the ring, it could be outside the ring. And so it's really just a question of which direction you're looking. I could be looking inward and I could see whatever's there and say, well, that's me. Now I'm looking at me. I could be looking outward from the ring and I could say, well, that's not me. And I could call that God, right? I could call that the universe. Really, any idea of like, who am I really? I'm the consciousness that exists at the spot of that line that makes up the circle. And from this consciousness, I can look inward and I could call that me, but Really, it's just part of the universe. Really, it's just part of God. But it's the stuff that exists inward instead of outward. And those are thoughts, emotions, psychological states. All of that's part of this all, of this, this whole creation. But on some level, there is at least the sense that my consciousness is limited to this point of perception along this ring 
this circle that defines me, that marks me as Relendra and marks somebody else as somebody else. And so the thing to be understood here is that our attachment trauma with our parents is really actually a stand-in for our attachment trauma with God. Any trauma is a stand-in for this fundamental trauma. The trust wound. It comes down to trust. Can I trust that it's okay to be alive? Can I trust that it's okay to exist? Can I trust that it's okay for me in particular to exist? That I'm okay to exist? That my existence isn't a crime somehow? Can I trust the other? Can I trust this world? I experience this world that's not in my control. I have like limited amount of control of myself and my body my choices and then there's all these things that i can't control that they're just there and i can look at that and i can see so much violence so much harm so much deception so much evil and i could say how can i trust this how can i trust whatever that force of creation was that made things include this in it And so you can be looking outward and you can be looking inward. You can try to find out like, how do I trust any of this? How do I trust myself when I've been gaslighted? When I've been abused, was it my fault that I was abused? If it wasn't my fault, is it God's fault? Is God evil? And we'll go into this place of like, dissociation with the question. Uh, perhaps taking on the identity of atheism and saying, well, well, I don't believe in God, so therefore this isn't a problem. And I just go through life and things happen and then it's over. And that's all there is to it. Uh, and that's a way to get through life. You know, that's a valid way to get through life. However, it's, it's a way of getting through life that's going to involve some dissociation, some unconsciousness. There's going to be um, a certain level of this trauma that can't be addressed that way. By just assuming that like, everything is just kind of random and it just happens and none of it really matters. It's kind of like living your life in a perpetual dissociated state. And who could blame you, right? Who could blame you in, in a world that's this intense, in a reality that's this intense of being incarnated as a human being And so if that's working for you, you're going to keep doing it. And it's just like when it stops working, when it doesn't work, then we've got to go elsewhere. 
we've got to go into awareness and say like, yeah, I can't just skim along the surface. I can't just go through life dissociated. Something in me won't do it. Something in me won't allow it. I've got to confront what is. I'm thirsty for truth. Thirsty to have awareness and knowledge of what's real. I want to know what God really is. What is that? Insofar as that's a word that describes everything altogether, I want to know what that is and I want to know if I can trust it. Is it safe to be alive? Is it safe to die? When it comes time for my death, if I can't trust this being slash entity slash energy slash whatever that is responsible for this reality, that when you really, if you really stop to think about like, wow, I'm actually conscious here in this reality, in a world that's taken this particular form, you take it for granted. But it's really strange. It's a really strange thing. Our lives are very strange experiences. Inexplicably strange and bizarre and wondrous. Can I trust it? Can I trust this when I've been harmed? When I know what terror feels like? When I know what it feels like to be so confused and terrorized that I've had trauma put into my body that created fractures and freezings of my very sense of myself, where I couldn't think, where I didn't know who I was. Maybe sometimes I still don't know who I was, who I am, because the trauma has been so intense. Well, how do I trust that? How do I trust the world? where somebody can just get it into their mind and heart to, to do a murder, to do a million murders, to back it up on lies, to be a con artist, to trade on trust, prey on people, a predatory world. We've got predators in nature that are cutting down the lives of animals, you know, that would rather not be dead. And we got predators among us as human beings who may have a psychopathic process that's going on for them, or a malignant narcissistic process, or both. And they're thinking like a computer with no empathy, with no heart. And they're thinking, how do I get as much power and domination as I can? What lies do I need to tell? How expertly do I need to weave them? Who do I have to bribe? Who do I have to threaten? Where can I get away with crimes that can help me climb to power? How can I betray people's trust? How can I get people to work for me? How can I manipulate people like puppets? The people who find answers to those questions are the people who rule our world. That's how they got there. And how do we reconcile with God? 
those people are there. If psychopaths exist, then part of God is a psychopath. Right? And if that energy out there exists, it exists within us too. And I believe that's true. I believe we all have a part of our mind that is psychopathic. It's totally instrumental. You can look at any situation and say, here's my angle. Here's how I benefit. No feelings, no empathy. There's a part of the mind that's like that. It's like a machine, like a robot. Well, we gotta forgive ourselves for that. We gotta remember that there's also love there. We find the strength to keep loving, even with all the harm that we've been through, all the trauma, the abuse. If we can forgive ourselves and love ourselves in that way, we can forgive God too and love God in that way. We start to realize just like that ring, right? Well, what's inside the ring is me. Well, that goes on for infinity. We have the whole idea of like, well, it's gonna be infinitely big going out past the ring. But really things get go oh, infinitely small as well. It's just a different direction. And when we realize like God and me, like we're the same. We're the same. Whatever I am was created out of the wholeness of the entire existing world that is God in that moment. All the energies of that world are within me. And we've come here to experience this incarnation, this limitation of form. And there's gonna be trauma there. It's gonna be fear, deprivation, harm. So how do we heal that trauma? You know, we just gotta trust, we gotta find our trust. We gotta choose to trust. And if you wanna think about like, how do I get to that place of trust? Well, I think that one way to get there is to be contemplating that moment of death, you know, and I've talked to a lot of people about this and I've encountered quite a few people who, who really have not reckoned with death. And, but, but they believe that they have. And you, the way that they believe they have has usually just been like, oh, I don't think about that. <laughs> That's my reckoning with death. Um, or I just assume that it's gonna be fine. I've talked to a lot of people who just assume that at the moment of death, it's just like everything just ends and like consciousness is just no longer. It hasn't occurred to them that, wait, why am I conscious in the first place? It's not because I've got a body. Consciousness is, is God. 
There's no explanation. You can't explain consciousness. Through the material sciences, it's, uh, it's completely different type of a thing. And consciousness is the only thing we really have an experience of. We, we're conscious of things, but we don't really know what the things are that we're conscious of. We just know what our conscious experience is. We have a conscious experience of memories, um, and so on. Sensations. Sometimes that question of really confronting death, if you haven't done it, you might do it if you, if you journey with some psychedelics, some plant medicine, and you might find yourself coming to that point of like, oh, am I dying right now? What is death going to be like? Is this going to be death? Is this death now? And then you really have to face it and and start to recognize like oh i don't know what this is i don't know what's gonna happen i don't know that my consciousness is just over how could it be over how could it be over like it, it couldn't be if it's there <laughs> it's gonna still be there no matter what you start to realize the whole world's conscious that God is that consciousness, and each of us is a point of consciousness, a point of God's consciousness. So, when faced with the unknown, when you realize, like, I'm going to not be able to breathe anymore, I'm not going to have this body, I'm, anything could happen, my mind could completely, like, have these experiences that I can't control, I don't know what's going to happen. And if the forces of this reality, the forces of God, are hostile and malevolent towards me, it could be hell. I could be eternally tortured. And if you've had that abusive conditioning that put that shame demon inside you that says, I am bad, you might be afraid that that's what's waiting for you in death. Isn't that what you would experience if you were bad in that way? Well, there's nothing more terrifying than that. You can't have any deeper experience of terror than the prospect of eternal torture and powerlessness and just experiencing torturous states of being through fear and pain. So you can approach death with terror. Or you can approach death with trust. Even though there's no reason, you don't have any reason why you're able to trust. Any evidence that says, this is why it's okay to trust. This is why my trust's not going to let me down. You just choose it. Because it feels so much better in that place of trust. Of like... I know what love is. I know that's my alignment. I know I'm aligned with goodness. 
And I know if I keep trusting and keep returning to that alignment, I'm going to be with the energies that I love, those love energies that I love. And maybe you realize the true nature of God is love. The true nature of me is love. It can be all these different experiences that cause us to doubt that, to forget it. We just keep trusting, keep coming back to trust. And this is the journey of life. It's the spiritual journey. Wow, there's so many spiritual journeys, so many life journeys. But that's the one I wanted to start with for this webcast. Attachment, trauma, and God. How our spiritual journey can be about coming back to love, coming back into loving, trust, and alignment with love. Recognizing the true nature of ourselves and of God as love. And that's where the trauma can be healed. Thanks for being with me. I am Rilendra, and I'm signing out. See you next time.